I'm Amy Regis from HuffPost Australia and today I'm talking with Simon Kemp who is the founder of Kepios and global consultant for We Are Social and Contagious and we're chatting about a, well, a subject that I find really interesting and that's algorithms and how they're going to impact the world, the entire world. Thanks for joining us in the HuffPost, um, HuffPost office. So I was lucky enough to hear you talk um, yesterday at Vivid about algorithms yes. and why they're going to take over the world. Yes. Do you want to give me a bit of intro and talk to me about that? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting that you said how algorithms are going to take over the world. In reality, the, uh, the algorithms that are defining all of the stuff in our smartphones and all the social networks that we use, they, they are already starting to take over the world. Um, we haven't really noticed it, but um, we talked quite a lot in the session at Vivid yesterday about the, the various ways in which the algorithms are influencing our daily lives right now. So from the perhaps the slightly more mundane day-to-day -day stuff, if you think about your social media feed, so if you think about your Facebook feed, for example, if you load up your Facebook app right now, at the top of the feed in there, there's going to be a post from a friend. You always get a social post before a sponsored post. So that's a really important thing to know. You're always going to have a friend, most likely, that sits at the top of your feed. But there's an algorithm that works behind the scenes in Facebook that chooses which of your friend's content appears at the top of that feed. Now, obviously, if it's an interesting post, then you're going to... Engagement, baby. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Last night's party and those yeah. dodgy photos. Um, if it's an interesting post and you engage with it, that then reinforces the algorithmic score, if you like. I'm doing air uh, quotes here, which is really useful on an audio podcast. Um, but if, if you interact with that piece of content and you reinforce Facebook's belief that you would find that person interesting, their score goes up. And so there's an even greater chance that next time, if they've got good content, that will appear at the top of your feed. So that algorithm is actually shaping the people that we interact with and is therefore actually shaping our social circles as well. So what seems like a relatively mundane interaction with the, the photos of the engagement or kittens or whatever else it is that happens to tickle your fancy, it's actually ending up shaping who you're closest to, who you interact with most and you know, that's quite a profound thing a lot of us class ourselves as very social creatures and if you think about the fact that a machine and an algorithm is now shaping that it's, you can see how that starts to to change things do you think obviously you and i as aware of this sort of thing happening and i can say oh i'm not going to like that picture because i don't want to see more of that but do you think that sort of awareness is widespread um Potentially, I think the real reason the algorithm works in Facebook is because they can sell more advertising using, you know, we'd we, we be very cynical about this and, and tell the commercial truths of it. But there's there's definitely a benefit back to the user as well. So, you know, I, I don't want to see posts that somebody, you know, you've always got that friend that posts every single meal that they've got. And it's like after the first three or four times that they've gone to a Michelin star restaurant, you just kind of want them to stop. So you stop interacting with it. And it's nice that the algorithm deprioritizes that in your feed. So I think that's, you know, it's one of the reasons why it has become so successful. Successful. And if you look at the you go nerdy for a moment and you look at the, the stats of Facebook usage around the world, we're very rapidly approaching two billion users of Facebook around the world. And that's that's not an accident. That doesn't happen by sort of like chance only. So the algorithm is definitely delivering the kind of content that we as audiences are interested in, whether it's coming from our own friends, whether it's coming from brands, whether it's coming from publications like the Half Post. So, you know, it's really interesting that that, that algorithm isn't just shaping our our social circles, if you like, it's also then shaping the kinds of content that we see. We ended up talking a little bit about the echo chamber, which I'm sure we're going to come back to a bit later. But um, I think, you know, the algorithm is definitely adding a lot of value. It's not perfect yet. That's not a criticism of Facebook. It's algorithms in general are still. And if you think about the, the grand scheme of human existence and the thousands of years that people have been around and algorithms are only really 
well, apparently uh, 150 years old, but in terms of like the technological implementation of them, we're only really 60 to 70 years into the life of algorithms. And so they're very definitely improving all the time. And I think you'll, you'll find that increasingly the algorithms do, as you suggested in your intro, um, they, they become far more pervasive and they influence pretty much every aspect of our life. The thing about Facebook, I mean, again, I'm using this from a, a content um, publisher sort of point of view, but there are people, I guess, who comment on our posts that say, I never want to see the Kardashians. <laughs> and I think at this point, because they're engaging with that Kardashian content, they're then seeing more Kardashian Correct. content. But do you think there'll be a time where the algorithm will say, they said they don't want to see this, so we'll just block it out? Yeah, I think you'll, you'll find that the algorithms are capable of analysing the text and uh, a bit more of the genuine sentiment within that text. So we'll know whether it's a negative interaction, a positive interaction or any other kind of emotion that goes with that. Um, I think increasingly we're going to find that its, it's influence broadens out. So you'll find that it's not just the Kardashians, there's millions of other wannabe Kardashians and the content that they see as well. So it's, it sort of spreads into all of these horrible little sort of nuanced echo chambers of different kinds of content. And I think people will gradually get a little bit frustrated by that, by the echo chamber sort of context, and they will train the algorithm or the algorithm will train itself to learn what you like better and it will give you a more varied feed because actually it, it is that variation that is going to keep people coming back on a frequent and regular basis. So, you know, it's, it, Kittens are still a big part of the internet, and I'm not sure that will change, but we may end up with a more varied context of kittens in the longer run. Yeah, we sort of find that as well, I guess, from a, a news perspective, when there is a really breaking news situation. So take Manchester, for example, mm. and we're posting a lot of content about Manchester on Facebook. If there is then a really good story that is not related to Manchester, that is just a nice story, mm. for some reason that's that cuts through, yeah. and it's because people just want to see something different every now and then. Yeah. You end up, you know, you, you get emotional numbness. There's only a certain amount of both good and bad emotion that you can deal with at any one time. And, you know, you do need that variation. It's one of the reasons we love to go to scary movies. It's like, why on earth would you scare yourself to death going and watching slasher movies and stuff? But we crave those emotional stimuli and those, you know, even something like a roller coaster. We love to <laughs> to stimulate ourselves both emotionally and physically on a roller coaster as well. And I think it's, it's the same when it comes to something like news or whether it's content or whatever else. We want that variety. Even in something like food, right? You don't want to eat the same thing every day. You may go if you're anybody like me, you go through phases of having pizza every day for about two weeks and then you suddenly realise that it's just not possible to keep doing that. And I so haven't you, reached that point yet. No, I could still comfortably eat pizza every day. Totally got to do it. Yeah. I, I went to Naples once and spent an entire week just eating pizza for breakfast, lunch and dinner. I highly recommend it. But yeah, after a Maybe week, I was, get me over it. I was ready to, to wrap up after a week. <laughs> um, so we spoke a bit, I mean, in the, in the presentation yesterday, there was a, a split, I guess, um, feeling about algorithms, mm. you know, like... There's obviously, we spoke about Google in quite detail, like how much Google knows about mm. us from calendars to maps to search from when I was 13, yeah. um, which is troubling, um, <laughs> right through to today. And there was sort of a split decision of like pe some people are really terrified about this yeah. and other people are really excited. Where, where do you sit in that? So personally, I'm on the very excited end of the spectrum, although I'm aware that there are aspects of it that are troubling. I think it, it, it's very rarely the system that's the issue. It's how humans abuse the data that is collected by the system that I worry about. But I am all for teaching Google 
everything that I like. I want it to know as much about me as it can because that helps me to get more of the things I like. And also, it, it's interesting. I mean, Google is almost, not just Google, but Google is getting to the stage now where it's it's almost cracking serendipity, which is seemingly, it's a little bit of a contradiction when it comes to algorithms because an awful lot of algorithms are about efficiency, which if you think about it, it's almost the opposite of serendipity. But I'm noticing, so I was telling the story yesterday, I'm going to keep on coming back to this example, am I? I'm going to embarrass myself frequently in public now. But So I buy an awful lot of tech. No, I've always loved like dance music and very, very nerdy music. Basically, um, I was very anti-pop when I was in my sort of early teens because I was shaping my identity and expressing myself to the world. And I've sort of carried on. And much, you're a DJ as well, right? <laughs> Allegedly, <laughs> I used to be, but now I seem to be spending far too much of my time doing talks about algorithms at conferences. Um, but yeah, so music is still a massive passion for me, and I, I buy a lot of secondhand CDs off Amazon just because I like tactile media. This is a whole different rabbit hole. Let's park that one. But um, as part of buying all of this techno on Amazon, Amazon, obviously, it knows what I buy. It knows what everybody else that buys CDs buys. And it starts to spot patterns and trends within that. And um, there was a particular day when I bought three or four um, slightly older techno compilations. And it then said, oh, people like you also bought Elton John. And I sort of looked at it incredulous. I was thinking, that's got to be a mistake. So I couldn't resist. I had to click through and see why it was recommending Elton John to me. And it was a greatest hits compilation from Elton John and I loaded it up and I thought oh yeah I remember that song it's a sort of karaoke favourite I sing along to that oh that one's really good good damn it actually I really do quite like Elton John it was like Amazon's algorithm had actually cracked what I liked better than I was aware of myself now obviously hopefully it's not only going to recommend me Elton John and we'll get back to techno relatively soon but I think it's that kind of stuff that's fascinating so the more Google knows about me the more it helps me discover stuff on the fringes so Back to, back to your question. I give long-winded answers. Sorry, I'll take you off on all these rabbit holes. But It's an interesting rabbit hole. It's okay. So I think you know, the more I teach Google and the more I teach Amazon and even the more I teach Facebook about stuff that I like, the more likely I am to find those things on the fringes to discover new, whether it's content or products or whatever else it may be, that I would not have discovered if I had been a little bit more perhaps uh, sensitive about privacy and not telling Google everything about me. Yeah, I want to talk a bit about Alexa and mm. Amazon, which you brought out, and the whole sort of voice um, voice aspect that that comes into this. Mm. And I think one of the points you brought up earlier, like in the in the talk, was that who chooses the brand that Alexa then picks for you? Yes. And if you're talking about discovering things on the fringes and that sort of thing, where does that then come into it? Like it's going to be so personalized, but. How, where does the brand come from? Yes, yeah, a bit of context. Alexa is a sort of a, a voice-controlled device that sits in your home, whether in your living room or in your kitchen, something like that. So it's a, a nice little, it's a very elegant black cylinder for the most part. There are small versions and large versions of this. I'm not doing an advert for Amazon, don't worry. Um, but it's a voice-controlled unit and it, it speaks back to you in audio. So there's no screen to it. And it's primarily connected to Amazon, obviously, but it also connects to content. So it plays music if you want it to. Um, you can ask it to read out Wikipedia pages if you're busy and you want to understand what that dinosaur with the scales on its back was called. And it will you know, read this stuff out to you. But you're right. I think what's really interesting about it is it's a voice controlled device. Um, and if you're using that for shopping, if you think about the way you talk to your friends and family about doing your groceries, for example, um, most of us that are non-marketers tend to talk in terms of category generics and needs. So I need beer, I need ice cream. You know, these are actual physical needs in life, as you're probably aware. I need ice cream, not I want ice cream. <laughs> um, but we don't say I need 
Heineken and I need Ben and Jerry's, except in very specific circumstances where you really are craving that particular brand. But, you know, when it gets to things like, oh, I've run out of toothpaste, you tend not to be very specific about the brand. You talk about the generic. And the thing is, this is a natural way that we speak to each other. And because of the fact that things like Alexa and Google Home, which is another voice controlled device, because it's building on existing behaviors of the way we speak, we're very likely to speak to these devices in the same ways that we speak to each other. So I'm not going to go, you know, when you when you shop on an e-commerce site on the internet and you go into your browser and you can see all of these very visual things and you choose based on packaging and all that kind of stuff. And you do choose a brand. But if you're choosing something by voice and you say, hey, Alexa, add beer to my car, what then happens? How does Alexa decide whether you're going to get Heineken or Foster's? Because apparently Foster's is a really popular brand in Australia. I thought until I got here. <laughs> until it's you like, get here. It, it, it's not an Australian brand at all. It's an export brand. It's fascinating. Um, <laughs> things that you learn. Um, but, you know, how does it decide which of these brands is going to go into my car? We, we sort of looked at some of it might be that um, it, it asks you. So Alexa say, sure, Simon, which brand would you like? And the reality is it's the same as if I go into a bar and I say, I'll have a lager. And the barman goes, which one would you like? And I suddenly have this crisis of confidence that he's going to judge me for the brand that I choose. And I say, oh, whatever, just give me a lager. And of course, they judge you anyway. But you know, Alexa may behave in that way, it may ask, um, but it may then just default to the previous uh, beer brand that I bought. So, you know, I'm a regular shopper. I buy beer every week. <clears throat> Sorry, mum. And, you know, it might just say, right, Simon obviously likes these following brands. Just add them straight into his cart without asking. It might look at what my friends have bought. So, you know, if, if Amazon gets to the stage where it understands my social network, it might say, oh, most of Simon's friends are just starting this amazing new craft beer. Would you like to try that, Simon? It's a suggestion that we've got based on your social network. And you go, oh, that sounds really good. Add that. But I think what we'll probably get to relatively quick is that the platforms like Amazon will emphasize the algorithm making a decision for you. So if I say add beer to my car, it will either base that on all sorts of algorithmic inputs or in the same way that we get with Google search, you will probably find that brands are able to pay to be a recommendation that then goes in. Now, what I would imagine is going to happen in the early days of that, it will probably add it as a free sample into your cart and you obviously can't do that forever you can't give beer away for free forever sadly much as i'd love them to be able to so you know i think in the early days of this we'll see an awful lot of if i say add beer to my cart it will give me a sample of all sorts of different brands and let me try stuff and you know you, you can see how that leads back to the the serendipity and the discovery stuff that we talked about earlier very quickly yeah and i guess we also i mean coming from a content base fake news is a, <laughs> a big discussion yes. so it do you think that I'm not saying that Amazon is evil or that Google is evil, but obviously they have quite a huge responsibility to yes. to keep these sort of things under wraps, as does mm. Facebook. And I know Facebook is developing, I think, humans to actually go through at the moment and, and report on things, and they tested it in Germany um, with that sort of thing. Do you think that algorithms are capable of doing that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, algorithms are going to play an incredibly important part of making that possible. Um, it's one of those really sensitive topics at the moment. So if you think about hate speech on social networks, and there's an awful lot of governments around the world that are demanding that the social networks take responsibility for removing this content or limiting its reach to certain groups. It's a really difficult topic to talk about without offending somebody. But I think at the moment, you've got a situation where like I said earlier, you've got 2 billion people using Facebook on a monthly basis. Now, if you take the world's biggest country, China, which is one point, just under 1.4 billion people, there are 
literally millions of policemen and policewomen in China that are policing that population. If you had to do the same thing on Facebook, you're going to need even more than that. Now, Facebook doesn't have a million employees, let alone a million people that are just looking at policing content. So they're going to have to have some kind of tool that helps them. And that's where the algorithm comes in. But as we saw with all of the, the scandals around the American elections last year, where you know they were accused, Facebook was accused, first of all, of having its editorial team to introduce its bias into what was into the trending topics. But then when they made an algorithm do it, the algorithm couldn't distinguish between the so-called fake news and real news and obviously whether you think it's fake news a lot of the time depends on your perspective um so let's avoid that rabbit hole as well but i think that the, you know the um the algorithmic bit is very very important i think there are there are some very important pattern recognition tools that will allow you to see whether it, the piece of news is being written by a proper journalist. <laughs> proper so you've journalist. got the blue tick or not, essentially. Yeah, basically. But I think there's also there's the styles of writing and stuff like that, which are an important part of understanding whether this is just some psycho in their front room writing a rant and filling it with all sorts of made up truths. So you'll be able to fact check algorithmically. You know, you can look against Wikipedia, you can look against other reliable sources and see whether these facts match. If I'm quoting ridiculous statistics on a particular topic then you can check that against other stuff if you've got an algorithm that's been programmed to do that and I think that will get a lot more sophisticated quite quickly I don't think it's at the stage where it can do it on its own yet you're definitely going to need human intervention I think this is, is already alluding into that whole is an algorithm going to take my job kind of question um, and at the moment I think we're, we're much more likely to see a situation for almost everybody where the algorithms augment their job and make it easier take a lot of the drudge work so I even identify potentially harmful posts on Facebook an algorithm is going to help to surface that but you will most likely then need a human to decide whether it's genuine or it just happened to have so they've, they've already got these algorithms that can identify whether there's a lot of naked flesh in a picture <laughs> so it can decide whether or not this is porn but it might just be that you're at the beach you know there's a lot of flesh in this but you're you know you're in your budgie smugglers um, and it, you know that's not porn at least by most definitions of it. It depends on how you want to interpret it. You know, you, you have a human looking at that. Can it distinguish between um, me in... <laughs> really hesitant about the example We're going I do. There. We're going there. So uh, it's me in a pair of sexy shorts in a sexy movie, or it's me on the beach with my mates just hanging out playing football. You know, it's a very fine line in terms of the way that the algorithm would analyze the colors in that image and make its decision. But you and I looking at it, we would know immediately whether it was sketchy content or whether it was just a harmless, here we are at the beach having fun. I'm going to leave that example. Yeah. I can see this as a dangerous topic. And that's the... No. <laughs> we just ended on that note. We edited all the bad stuff out. Um, I wanted... Like, you spoke about sort of algorithms assisting humans in their jobs. Mm. And I think um, the example that was given at the talk yesterday was that, well, when I was growing up, I remembered everyone's phone number. I knew yeah. my parents' mobile number off by heart. But now that I know that my phone has that information, I basically only know my mum's mobile number off by heart because yep. she's kept the same one. Um, but you don't know anyone's number off mm. by heart. So it's – but then my brain's then free to learn other things. So yep. that's, I guess, exciting for me. But do you think majority of people are excited about that or is it sort of a, oh, God, I don't remember anything anymore? Yeah, I think a lot of this comes down to 
age, and I mean that not in a judgmental way, it's an experience thing. So my mum and I have regular conversations because, you know, she says, what exactly do you do at work? You, know, says, you, you spend a lot of time on Facebook, don't you? And, you know, my mum is a, an avid user of all sorts of technology, but I think a lot of the time she sort of looks at this stuff and kind of gets a little bit nervous about what it means as well. Um, so I was showing her how to use the voice-controlled stuff to write her shopping lists, and she was just like, this is amazing, you know, this stuff, how does it work? But at the same time, she was a bit like, I quite like writing it down with a pencil because it helps me remember. So this, you know, this sort of alludes to what you were talking about there. You, you've got a situation now where studies have been conducted around the world into how people form memories. And you know, there's all sorts of science behind it that I don't understand. But since the advent of the internet, the way that we form memories has radically changed. So instead of remembering the phone number, like you were giving as the example, I now know where I can find that phone number if I need it. Actually, I don't even need the phone number anymore. I just press the person's face on my phone and it calls them. But, you know, an awful lot of factual information. <laughs> you remember when you were at school and you got taught history and you had to remember the dates? And it's like, this is so pointless in today's world. You, I mean, it was always pointless anyway. Why do you need to remember the date? Yeah, you won't have a calculator everywhere you go oh, jokes not, on you yeah totally like my, <laughs> my phone not only calculates but it does it automatically for me without me thinking and tells me what i should do um, but you know because of the way that we now have ubiquitous access to god what was the name of that actor in that movie at imdb or what was the name of that dinosaur with scales on its back let me look at wikipedia we no longer are you know the way our brains store this kind of memory is that they don't store the fact itself they store where to find that fact so your immediate response when you get a difficult question now is let me take my phone out of my pocket and your decision making process is not how do i remember that guy's name it's should I go on to IMDb? Should I go on to Google search? And that's, that's the way we're now analyzing and sort of contextualizing information. And, you know, that's just about forming memories. Once you get into things like making decisions, because we're going to increasingly rely on these algorithmic sort of processes, so your friends all bought this, so you should buy it too. We actually end up changing the way that we form decisions. It's really quite unnerving especially from a marketing perspective you think about our entire world in marketing is based on forming strong preferences for individual brands but if an algorithm is making that choice for me all of a sudden the whole world of marketing and advertising and actually an awful lot of business changes fundamentally um so i think that kind of stuff is fascinating it, it's not just that it's shaping individual choices it's actually shaping the way we make choices in general and this is going to not just impact which detergent and shampoo we buy we're already seeing that this is actually impacting how people date as well so looking at something like tinder where there's an algorithm that decides which people appear in your tinder um, sort of feed if you like if we can call it that so just, just a little random anecdote on uh, on tinder apparently the average i've been told the average session on Tinder is 20 to 30 people. Now, men will swipe right 20 to 30 times because law of averages, somebody's going to swipe right on me out of that as well. Obviously, ladies are a lot more discerning in here. But the reality is that out of those 20 to 30 people, an algorithm has decided which of those people will appear. And therefore, the algorithm in there is determining who you're going to date with who you end up potentially marrying, who you have children with. I mean, the, the algorithm really is determining the entire future gene pool of humanity. And we're outsourcing that kind of decision to a machine, to an algorithm. And if we're doing that, you can imagine why more sort of day-to-day, -day less interesting decisions, we're just going to not be able to make them anymore because they don't matter to us. It's like, should I buy detergent brand A or B? It doesn't matter. Just get the algorithm to choose it for me. Do you think, okay, I know you just mentioned it's an age thing and, and I have quite like a younger cousin who they speak to Siri and they just expect to get the answer. They don't really Brilliant. care where it comes from. Yeah. 
So do you think that as, I mean, there's a lot of sceptical adults at the moment, but mm. eventually we'll just get to a point where no one will care, they won't think about it too much? That's a really, really interesting question. My niece and nephew, similar, uh, I watch them playing with their Lego on the floor and they've got a, an iPad or a, a phone next to them and they just say, hey, Siri, tell me about dinosaurs. This is where all my dinosaur things come from, <laughs> watching them play with this stuff. Um, and it is fascinating, you know. It is, it's a little bit like, does the algorithm choose the brand for me? How does it decide where my content comes from? So should it choose Huffington Post? Should it choose something else? I think this is this is a really sort of, it goes much further in terms of its implications than just the commercial aspects of will this publisher or this content creator survive? I mean, it, that is what shapes culture. If you think about an awful lot of the way that societies and civilizations evolve it depends on a world view which is shared by a lot of people in that particular society and you know that there's a lot of people around the world that are worried about the sort of influence of one or two very large media organizations and you know they came they come from a certain cultural perspective i'm hesitant to say an american western perspective but let's face it the reality is a lot of the giants are coming out of that world and you come across into where i live in southeast asia and you realize that you're having a very different culture making decisions and sharing perspectives on a story that actually locally historically would have been a very different interpretation and yet now because we have access to the stuff almost without a decision like you were saying it's starting to shape society and culture and worldviews in different ways now is that good or a bad thing? I'm going to leave that entirely down to the subjective in, you know, interpretation of that. Personally, I like the idea of being able to see different points of view, so I'm a bit nervous about one dominant part of that, but at the same time, I like that I can now read the New York Times and I can read the Huffington Post and I can read Al Jazeera and I can read the BBC and I can read the Straits Times in Singapore. I've got all these different perspectives and they're available to me. So I think it, it's going to be the same question for content as it was for brands. Who decides when you say, hey Siri, tell me about that dinosaur? Is it going to read me the Wikipedia page? Is Wikipedia reliable? Because it's crowdsourced. You know, has somebody gone in and corrupted it? And we saw quite an interesting example of this recently where Burger King and the US uh, created a TV ad that triggered Google Home and it said, hey Google, what's the Whopper burger? And it was deliberately triggering the Google Home system to then read out the Wikipedia page about the Whopper burger and as soon as people cottoned onto what was happening you had all of these slightly nefarious young teenagers across the US going in and editing the Wikipedia page so that it was saying that uh, the Whopper burger is made of recycled children and uranium and it was like ha ha the lulls with having great entertainment at Burger King's expense I actually think Burger King were totally in on this act because it's great PR and publicity yeah. for them right but it raises a really scary question of who decides whether or not the facts that have been recorded in Wikipedia are accurate because that is now the reference point and if it's crowdsourced and you want to go in and change history if none of us remember those facts anymore who's to say they're right or wrong we've got no proof because the proof is written down here but the proof has been edited now the good thing about wikipedia is it's got a history so you can see all of the edits that you've been made but most people will never even know that exists let alone go in and read it so i think you know this from a media perspective of reporting fake news or accuracy or even just without cultural bias and perspective i think that's a really really important question that as an industry and as society we need to start looking at in a lot more detail how do we preserve the integrity of fact versus then adding you know what is an important personality and cultural lens around that but making sure that the essence of fact is still genuine truth yeah well well like my mind's just blowing a little <laughs> bit thinking about that but um i want to talk a bit about the fears that people have mm. so 
I mean, we've not talked about fears really already. No, well, we have, <laughs> but not in the sense of, I guess, privacy. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things you mentioned in the talk was that um, our bleakest visions of the future come off the back of this sort of machine or algorithms not mm. having any empathy. Yes. But can we teach it empathy? I believe we can. This is really interesting. It's at the, the edge of the development of artificial intelligence, machine learning, all of these great buzzwords that we keep hearing and we're kind of not quite sure what they really mean. But empathy is a f what we believe to be one of the most fundamental human traits, right? So anybody that lacks empathy, we call a sociopath and they're the most dangerous people on earth. If you read sort of police profiling reports so somebody without empathy is very likely to go on rampages and kill large numbers of people they're the sorts of people you want to stay away from right and then you know, as you were saying you've got these sort of science fiction visions of the future where you've got terminator or even something like ex machina or her you've got these movies that are telling this bleak future of we've created these amazing artificial intelligence organisms almost but they don't have any empathy but when you actually look at what empathy is i mean it's a learned series of responses to external triggers and we're not born with that we have certain biological triggers for it but an awful lot of empathy is actually things that we learn once we get to 18 months and two years old so because it's something that we learn as children you can codify what that looks like and if you can codify it you can write it into an algorithm as well so we're actually already seeing um, proof of concept of this. There are things out there in the world that are artificial empathy systems. Weirdly, we've, we've now got this great sophisticated technology and we're using it for bizarre things like we've got uh, concierges at hotels that are robots that can read my face and see whether I'm angry or if I just want a recommendation for a, a restaurant that night. Um, I'm hoping that we're going to see that extend into much more important aspects of life as well. Not that a concierge is a bad thing, but I think there's probably slightly more high value things that we can use empathy for as well. So I think, you know, a lot of people, their, their greatest fears of where the technology is going is that it's cold, it's non-human, it lacks empathy. And I think it's only going to be a relatively short period of time before we start to see a synthesized or artificial empathy making its way into the technology. And, you know, if you've seen the movie Her, if you can't tell the difference between a person and a machine, does it matter on a very existential fundamental basis? Does it matter to you? If it makes you feel happy, does it matter if it's a machine or a person? And a lot of people would say, yes, it matters totally. But if you don't know, like you genuinely don't know, you still get the benefit from it, right? And I think this is, we get to these really awkward kind of questions that we need to ask as, again, it's a society and a civilization thing, but I don't think it will be that long before this is absolutely real and we're having to make those decisions. Being <laughs> <laughs> slightly nervous again. For the benefit of our listeners, yeah. Amy has a very worried face. I think as well, like after chatting with a few of the people, few people yesterday about this sort of whole concept, the, the biggest fear that people have isn't necessarily the technology. It's mm. more that it's going to get in the hands of the wrong people. Yes. Um, so are there any, is there an algorithm that can fix that, <laughs> potentially? I hadn't thought about that. Yes, I think we, we need an algorithm that screens whether anybody that uses an algorithm is a reliable human being. We just need to make sure that the person that writes that algorithm is not unhinged. Yeah, this is, the, this is the funny thing about um, algorithms, right? So we're now in a situation where algorithms can write algorithms which will go on to write algorithms. But the very first algorithm will be shaped by the human that writes it. And if you think about it, I mean, this is the same as genetics, right? You go way back to your great, 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 great grandparents. Their genetics are spread across your entire diverse spread family. And it's exactly the same. So the, the human contribution 
to that algorithm. And it, I know it sounds a bit weird because it's, it's a technical process, but the way that you've crafted that algorithm as a, a coder, it does have elements of you, traces of your personality and your culture and all those kinds of things in it. And that will then inevitably trickle through into every subsequent algorithm that those algorithms write for the rest of time. Um, so I think, you know, that there's not an algorithm that's going to decide in an absolute way whether somebody is good or bad. I mean, if, if you look at history, it, it, there is, it, it's, it's very difficult to find significant numbers of people that are on the absolute extremes of that. Most of us tend towards the, we're good most of the time, but we have our little slip-ups, right? Um, I think, you know, an algorithm may analyze our behavior and look at our early Facebook posts when we were young and say, ooh, Simon used to get drunk as a teenager, disgraceful, not good for a politician, he's never going to be allowed to do that. You may end up actually having algorithms that do that kind of thing but i don't think you will ever get to the stage where we are comfortable as society and as a culture of deferring everything about that to an algorithm but i think going back to the the earlier bit of your question about how dangerous this is if these systems get into the wrong hands the weaponization i hate that word but the weaponization of artificial intelligence where we're using it for warfare the u.s government released a report that it in which it said that artificial intelligence warfare is inevitable. The fact that they published this was slightly unnerving as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, they believe, the government in the US believe that this is inevitable. And I think if they're of that opinion, then unfortunately there's a very good likelihood that it will happen. Um, and I think, you know, we, we've got to be worried about that. Everybody in the world needs to be terrified of the idea that the Terminator may be coming. And, and unfortunately, if we don't build sufficient empathy, if we don't build sufficient sort of compassionate treatment of people into these algorithms and systems, that we are going to see them coming along and killing us just because we happen to be of a different belief pattern or a different skin color or even just a different gender. I mean, it, it really could get to that horrendous level. Ideally, it's up to all of us to make sure that never happens. But, you know, this is a possibility. So we need to vote for the right world leaders is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, then you get into questions of who's right. Who's right. It's really dangerous, isn't it? Um, and you know, I don't I'll, want to go there right no, now. No, <laughs> I think we should probably park that one and let our readers, readers, let our listeners decide who's right for them. But yes, I think responsibility, not just for the next four years of the, uh, the uh, politicians that we vote in, we need to have a longer term view. And I think that's an awful lot of what I think the world has been scared about over the last sort of few electoral cycles is that it's a very short term decision making pattern that is shaping the current political system. So you spoke about sort of the, the key companies being Google, Facebook, Amazon and Apple. Correct. That, that the four horsemen, as Professor Galloway likes to call them. Do you, obviously, they're not using it for anything particularly evil at this point. Apparently not. That we can't. That we know about. That we know of. Yes. Uh, Google's motto used to be, don't be evil. Really? Yeah, apparently that was the fundamental founding philosophy of Google. I think they should all go back to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, is it... Is it possible that there's another entity out there that is developing at the same rate that any of these companies are? Yes, using absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the, the interesting thing is you've got entities out there that don't need to collect that information. They just they either license it from somebody or they buy it or whatever else. So there's a, a fascinating and utterly like, mind-bending article um, about how Trump won the election in the US by using vast amounts of Facebook data. Um, I'm not going to go into too much of how it works because it's probably a little bit too technical to explain um, <laughs> within the next hour even, let alone the next half hour. But you've got this entity called Cambridge Analytica which 
gathered vast amounts of data about people's Facebook likes. Um, and the guy that was writing the report about it said that with just 68 likes, it could accurately predict, I think it was to 98% accuracy or something horrendously high like that, um, just by your likes, not knowing anything about you, not seeing your profile picture, but just based on your likes, it could identify your skin color, your sexual preference, your religious affiliation, whether or not you smoked, whether you took drugs, whether you were likely to have an affair. So just utterly amazing. That was 68 likes. Once it gets down to 300 likes, there's a very good chance that that system could predict what you're going to do with as much accuracy as your husband or wife. And once it got past 300 likes, it would know you better than you knew yourself, much in the same way that we were talking about with Amazon earlier. Um, but I think what's really interesting about that is that you've, that's just Facebook data. When you get into the things like the Google data and whatever else, if you've got companies out there that can tap into both Facebook data and Google data and Apple data and Amazon and all these other companies and they can bring it all together and somehow identify that this is you as an individual and they've gathered this data, you know, that, that's utterly terrifying if you're misusing it. It's amazing if you're using it for good. But I think, you know, that's the situation where we're at, that it's not just the four horsemen that are <coughs> collecting and using that information. They are at a certain level licensing that to other people too. Well, on that note, <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe we should leave it there. I can just set everybody up with this terrible outlook and so bleak, futuristic really stuff. Really negative stuff. No, but there's obviously a way to bring it back around in that... It's helping us a lot. Absolutely. And I think if we focus on that, and there's obviously a lot of good people in the world that aren't using it for evil, yes. then hopefully the good will outweigh the bad. That's just what humanity relies on in general, right? Correct. I think for everybody listening to this who is worried, take a proactive interest in it and find how you can use it for good, and ideally the good will then outweigh the bad. Well, thank you so much, Simon. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that, please leave us a rating or a review. Um, and don't forget to search for our other great podcast content. Um, just search HuffPost Australia on your favourite podcast provider.